Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37, page 1051 in our church Bible. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 37, page 1051 in our church Bible. The coming of the kingdom of God. Once, I've been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People will be eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one is on the doors on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, Two people will be in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding corn together, one will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Mary, thank you for reading for us. And we say it every week, do please keep your Bibles open. That's really important for us this morning as we hear from our Saviour. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this glorious day. And Father, we thank you that we can gather today as the church to hear this incredibly important message and the words of our Saviour. Please prepare our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me introduce you to Rob. Rob is a high flyer. He works as a trader in the City of London. A normal week for Rob is 60 hours of commuting and working hard in the office to earn as much commission as he can. Rob loves his job, but he loves his family more. He wants to provide the best for his wife and kids. 
He wants them to live in the big house. He wants to send his kids to the best schools. They want to eat at the best restaurants and go on the most luxurious holidays. These things are important to Rob. And things are looking even better for Rob this summer. He's been told that it's likely he's going to get his promotion, which will not only mean a pay rise, but flexibility to possibly work less hours and maybe even do the odd day a week from home, something his wife has been longing for so he can spend more time with the family. So Rob is now in planning mode. The architect is booked for the extension and the extra special holiday has been extended from one week to two. And Rob really needs this one. He's not been feeling quite himself recently. He puts it down to tiredness and stress as he balances his responsibilities. It has been a very busy year for Rob. But there's a nagging doubt in his mind. And a week before the dream holiday, and just as he's about to sign the contracts and get the builders in, Rob is asking himself a question. Shall I book a doctor's appointment? Or shall I just ignore that nagging doubt in my mind? Because what if? What if there's a diagnosis? What if there's an illness? Yep, there might be some treatment. There might be hope. But what about my promotion? Who's going to pay the builders? What about that luxury holiday I'm so looking forward to? Surely I can't miss out. I can't lose all that. So what should Rob do? Should he call the doctors? Or should he call his builder? Pay the deposit whilst he books his Uber to Heathrow for a few days' time. Should he listen to his conscience? Or should he live in the moment and trust that everything will be all right? After all, it's quite inconvenient, all this. You can always see how he's feeling when he gets back. I don't think it's that urgent. And as we hear that hypothetical story, the question at the heart of it is huge. When faced with the big choices and crossroads of life, even life or death, what do we do? Even when it seems the answer is staring us in the face and quite obvious, will we let other priorities get in the way regardless of the consequences? Well, I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is asking us a similar question this morning. And as we come to consider the very, very clear application of verse 33, the choice we will make will have eternal consequences. Now, there is much for us to think about in these verses. Essentially, Jesus is teaching us about his kingdom. And he's firstly answering the question, when? Popular question, when, isn't it? When are we having lunch? When is the service going to finish? When are you going shopping? When is the carpet fitter coming? And essentially, the answer to when to those questions, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? But when will the kingdom of God come? Well, that's a life and death question. And our passage starts with the Pharisees asking that very question. Let's read from verse 20. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, 
Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, the full version of the Pharisee's question is this. If you are king, Jesus, where are the signs? Where are the signs? Now, early in the other Gospels of Mark and Matthew, these words from Jesus are recorded. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And Jesus is basically repeating his answer to the Pharisees. That the kingdom is in your midst. It's all around you. And many are entering. Have you not seen it? The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus' answer is clear. I am the king. The kingdom is here in me, and you have missed it. You see, they're expecting something very different, a more Daniel 7-type conquering king, carving out a kingdom in front of them with borders and thrones and a military takeover with a flag. But the kingdom of God is unlike any worldly kingdom and cannot be observed by these types of signs. It is in your midst or it is within you. Jesus is describing the beginning of his spiritual kingdom. It began in a manger in Bethlehem. It was recognised by Simeon and Anna in the temple. Years later, by a few simple fishermen. And now many more are entering as God's spirit works in the lives of people, just as he does today. But the rulers and the Pharisees have got no eyes to see it. They're looking in the wrong direction. The kingdom is present. It's among them, in the person of the man in front of them, Jesus Christ. But did you notice also in these opening verses, we're being taught that there are two comings of Christ. Firstly, the Son of Man was appointed to come in weakness and humiliation, to suffer and die. Verse 25, first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Because when Jesus finally reaches Jerusalem, there's not going to be a throne, there will be a cross. In his first coming, Jesus came to save his people by giving his life as a ransom for many. He was made to be sin for us and to bear our sins on the cross. And by believing that truth, believing that his spilled blood on the cross is what washes us clean of our guilt and our shame, we are given changed hearts and saving faith. And that is the best news any of us can hear. It's life-saving and it's life-changing. But we are also taught here that one day there will be a second coming of the Son of Man. He will appear to complete the salvation of his people and in judgment of the whole world. And for the rest of our time together this morning, I want us to focus on this second coming. Because clearly, there is an application 
It's obvious, isn't it? An implication for those today who, who wouldn't say Jesus is their king. But there's also a reminder for us, the followers of Jesus. Because Jesus says that Christians should be longing for that day. Yes, the kingdom has come, but it's not fully come. And that's a truth that Jesus consistently talked, taught about his return. He said he would depart. He said there would be a long delay, and then he would return, and his kingdom would be fully ushered in. And that has eternal consequences. And it's why Luke, and more importantly, Jesus, lend the majority of this section to it. So I think we should too. Knowing the future will help us live properly in the present. Now, there are four marks of the second coming that we are told of here. Excuse me. And to illustrate his point, Jesus uses two of the most well-known passages of Scripture. But he reminds us of the days of Noah and the days of Lot so that we will take him extremely seriously. Because Jesus knows that as Christians, the temptation is to live with a foot in two kingdoms. So Jesus is really showing us his love and his grace to us as he teaches us. So firstly, before Jesus returns, sorry, Jesus tells us that his return will be sudden. His return will be sudden. Let's read from verse 22. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. Jesus' words here are directly pointed to the time immediately before his return and are a warning to disciples not to be sucked in to rumours that the Messiah is here. Jesus knows that false Christs and false prophets will rise up after his ascension and all believers must be on their guard. And clearly in these verses, Jesus is saying, don't worry, when I come back, you will know about it. And it will not only be sudden, it will be clearly marked, so unmistakable that true believers shall at once recognise it as the coming of their king and fall to their knees in worship. It will not be a slow, gradual event. It will come on every civilization of the earth at once. There is no way anyone will miss it. And we must be ready and living lives as if that day could be today. We're not going to get a text message three days before to make sure we're ready. Jesus' return will be sudden and unmistakably unmissable. And in the business of life, it's easy for that truth to go to the back of our minds. Christians often talk about the first coming and what that means. But when was the last time you spoke to someone about Jesus' return and it could happen any minute? And are you ready? Or when was the last time a fellow Christian talked to you about it? There's something for us to maybe pray about. 
Secondly, Jesus tells us his return will be an interruption. Now, the days of Noah and Lot are parallel in many ways, but they do illustrate, and they illustrate the same point. So in verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. Or likewise in verse 28, just as it was on the day of Lot, verse 30, so it will be on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And did you notice the similarities about the days themselves? Jesus wants us to notice what Noah and Lot's neighbours were doing before the flood and before the fire. So we have two lists here of just everyday life, don't we? So as Noah was entering the ark, his neighbours were eating and drinking, cracking open a bottle of wine whilst having friends over for a dinner party. And even as Noah was closing the door of the ark, down the road, there was a very, very grand party, a wedding. Imagine it, 200 guests, a beautiful church. The bride is walking down the aisle, and you hear the sound of rushing water. Do we see Jesus' point? There is nothing more future-focused than a wedding day. Surely, as you're walking down the aisle, you think, I've got the rest of my life in front of me. I've got a cake to cut, the honeymoon, children. Surely the end of the world can't, can't come before then. And it's a similar story in Lot's day. They're eating and drinking too, and they're buying and they're selling, they're running their business, they're making a living, making a profit, they're planting, they're building... Surely Jesus can't come back in the middle of the great projects of the world. Look what we've achieved. Have a look at London. Look at the Shard. It's amazing. And we've invested millions and millions into network rail, and it's not even nearly complete. And what about here in Banstead? We've waited patiently. Next year, the building's going to be extended, so more can come and hear the good news. What about my house? I've not decorated the spare room yet. Bathroom still needs a shower. The loft conversion isn't finished. Look at the state of the garden. Surely Jesus can't come back now. Well, Jesus' day will be like lightning, visible to all. And whenever that day comes, it's going to be a rude interruption. And these stories teach us that our plans are minuscule in comparison to the plans of God. And they clearly show us that God is king and in charge of his world and what and when things happen. Jesus will not be discussing his return with us. There'll be no consultation as to whether the timing is convenient. There's no withdrawal period or there's no 30-day call-off. No. One day, whatever we are in the middle of will just stop. And when we consider this, I wonder, does this change the value of what we might be looking forward to today, next week, next year? Maybe there's a lovely Father's Day lunch being cooked for you today. Or you're going on a wonderful holiday in a few weeks' time. Or retirement and relaxation is around the corner. Well, the day Jesus returns, we will all be in the middle of something and Jesus will simply interrupt it. 
as if his kingdom means and matters more. And he expects those that have already entered his kingdom to live longing for that day, rather than hoping for a bit more time to finish the things that we think are important. Now, you'd think interrupting the plans of humanity would be shocking enough. But the third mark of Jesus' return is it will be a destruction. Verse 27. People were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 29. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. I wonder how those words sit with us. As a minimum, it should be disturbing that Jesus goes to these two days to illustrate what his return will be like. And he does that so that we will understand him properly. The majority of people, including non-believers, non-churchgoers, they, they know the story of Noah, but perhaps most choose to ignore what it means. Death and judgment. And as Christians, we can understand that. We can understand why the anger by non-believers towards that story, as we too feel the, the same horror of the truth of it. But rather than see it as an act by, sorry, rather than see it as a random act by an angry God, the Bible teaches us that this and the fire of Lot are right judgments from a caring and patient God. In Noah's day, the Bible tells us that the rebellion of humanity against God is so total that every thought of humans was so wicked that the good God is sorry that he even created us. And in the case of Lot, God agreed with Abraham to save the city if there were even ten righteous people in the city whose lives would stand up in court. And the messengers who take the message to the city are treated to a mob of evil and sexual violence. And the, rea the reality is, has much changed since those days as we survey the 21st century. So Jesus chooses these days to show us how his kingdom will relate to all the activities and achievements of humanity up until that day. It will be like how the flood interrupted the people of Noah's day and how the fire responded to the culture of Lot's day. The word he uses is the word destroy, which is a similar word to what he uses in verse 33 for lost, which is where we are working towards for our clear application. Jesus is arguing that we need to lose the life we have in the kingdoms of the world because when he returns, everything there will be lost. And on the day, there won't be time for fairly split-second decisions, which is Jesus' point in verse 31 and 32. There won't be time to go back and grab whatever it is that you value. Don't go back. Remember Lot's wife. 
And if you're not familiar with the story of Genesis, it's a story of a man who felt the temptations of life now so strongly, he tried to live as close as possible to having both lives, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of, kings of the world. Lot, in chapter 13, chose the land that looked best to his eyes, even though he knew of the danger of the city next door. Originally camping on the outskirts in his tent, but as time went on, he moved closer and closer to Sodom, eventually, with his family, in the heart of the city, invested in Sodom. And by chapter 19, he is very difficult to remove from the city, even knowing the pending judgment from God. He has to be grabbed and told to flee. And even as the destruction is starting in front of his eyes, and it should be obvious there will be nothing left behind, his wife cannot bear to leave it all. The pull of Sodom, the pull of the world, it's like a magnet to her. She's absorbed by it. And as she looks back, she is turned into a pillar of salt. Remember Lot's wife. And the application in verse 33 becomes clear. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. Jesus does mean to force us to wake up and make decisions. His day will be a sudden interruption and a destruction. And because of these things, the last mark of his return will be separation. In verse 34 and 35, he chooses, Jesus chooses the two closest human relationships in the world. Verse 34, there will be two sharing a, bread, a bed, which of course is a picture of the closeness of husband and wife. But back in the Middle East, back then, families shared beds. There's no close relationship. And then in verse 35, the corn mill at the centre of the village where you would meet your friends and neighbours and you'd sit together, you'd grind this week's flour so you can make bread and eat. Of course, that's a picture of every close relationship outside of the family, isn't it? Our business partnerships, our social circles. And Jesus will interrupt and destroy everything that is not part of his kingdom when he returns, including people that have refused to enter. Tragically, there will be no negotiation. There won't be a free pass based on my love of Jesus for my friend, my neighbour, my family that day. And this won't be a temporary separation like the son that goes to university but comes back for holidays. Of all the truths taught in Scripture, this one, Eternal separation from those we love is probably the most painful truth taught by Jesus for Christians and causes the most doubts that Jesus is good and he's truthful. I think because of this, we often put it to the backs of our minds or we just continue thinking, 
yes, one day, one day, that person, they will bow their knee. Jesus won't come back until they're saved. And then weeks, months, years go by. And the reality here is that Jesus says that sadly, there will be those that are lost. And I just want to pause here for a moment. These words of Jesus, they, they, they affect us all. There's not a single one of us here who does not have someone close to them who doesn't know Jesus. And it is upsetting. And if you'd like to talk with and pray about after the service, do, do grab me or one of the elders or the oversight team. We'd happily pray with you. I have found this difficult to prepare this message as I've thought about those um, close to me. But I want to say it's driven me. It's driven me to prayer. And it's driven me to worship. Because as difficult as these words are, they're very difficult to hear. They're very difficult to take in. Let's remember the love of the one who says them. The Apostle Peter reminds us in his second letter in chapter 3, which is a very important passage to read alongside this. If you get a chance to later, please do. But he reminds us as to why Jesus' return hasn't happened yet. And he says this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That is how loving, that is how kind, gracious and merciful God is. But across the world, on that day, there will be a great separation. And knowing this truth, and what we have heard about this future, it has to, it must shape how we live now and how we wait for his return. There's so much for us to take away this morning. So much for us to apply for all of us, no matter where we are at with Christ this morning. I'd like to share a few brief applications for us to pray about and to talk about over coffee and to meet during the week. If you're with us and you're not a believer, or if you're sitting on the fence, anyone can enter this kingdom. Noah invited all, all of his neighbours, even though they were rejecting God. They were invited. So anyone here today can enter Jesus' kingdom. And it's the best news and the best decision you will ever, ever make in your life. Your mistakes, your guilt, your shame, your background, they don't bar you. All of the answers to death, sickness and guilt are in the kingdom. And forgiveness is available. And you're invited, even today. So please, make the right choice. Rob... Well, he was an imaginary person. But his story and the crossroads is what Jesus says to you today if you're sitting on the fence. Don't delay, it's urgent. 
And for the Christians here this morning, I include myself here, are we longing for Jesus' return? As we take the bread and wine later, will that be the focus of our prayers as we meditate? Christians know that following a crucified king in this world is hard. It's difficult. And waiting for the king who suffered and was executed won't always be comfortable. The world tells us that that we're weak, we're wrong, we're mad, and that we're going to miss out on so much that this world offers. And we we will be bombarded with the world's temptations and its distractions. And as much as we seek to be set apart and refrain from joining the kingdoms of the world, at times we might find ourselves with a foot in each camp. But Jesus has been very, very clear with us today. Don't try and live in both kingdoms. Remember Lot's wife. If you try and preserve your life here, you will lose it. And going back to grab your career, your savings, your possessions, even your relationships, that's, that could be disaster. So live your life now longing for his kingdom. Let the knowledge of the future impact how you live now. And if, as a Christian, that seems like a struggle to you, And perhaps the question to ask yourself is, am I over-invested in the here and now? And if this morning you're feeling convicted that that might be you, let me encourage you, you you won't be the only one. So let's talk to each other about these things. Let's be open, let's be honest about it. Let's remind ourselves from God's word, let's pray together that we would stay future-focused and long for the treasures of heaven and not of this world. And a good way to do that is to commit to joining one-to-one. Do please speak to Daniel Gomez, who's not here today, about that if you'd like to. Come speak to me or Andrew. Reading God's word and sharing life and praying together is a wonderful way to grow in our love and our knowledge as we are discipled by the Lord Jesus. And I, I personally commend that to you. At times, I, I, I struggle in this area. Do I think enough about the return of my saviour? Am I letting that impact how I live today? Or am I too busy with my to-do list and ultimately my life and what I want in my kingdom? Well, I'm very grateful for my wife, a few brothers in Christ, for reminding me of the truths that I need to hear and being pointed back to the only kingdom that matters and that the sacrifices are eternally worth it. Jesus is as clear about this as any other subject in Scripture. He says, the kingdom is here. The end of the world is coming. Get in the kingdom. And as we close, I believe that what we've heard this morning has a very practical implication for us even this week in the here and now. As we stand halfway through, our community outreach two weeks. And I wonder, how much more compelled are we now to arrange that coffee, that lunch, that dinner with my friend this week? 
and to proclaim the king of this kingdom and what it means to come to know him. How much more will we be relying on prayer for opportunity and for the Spirit's power to give us boldness and the words to proclaim him so that those that we love will step out of the world and into the glory of the kingdom. Jesus has been blunt with us this morning. But there are words that we need. And if we trust that he is our king and that his words are true and that he loved us that much, that he would die for us, and if we are longing for his kingdom as we proclaim and witness it, all that is left for us to do is to say, thank you, Jesus, and praise and worship him. What a wonderful prayer that is. One short prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.